0: Well, today we are in Matthew 24. We have been plotting through Matthew for the better part of a year now. We've just been going verse by verse through it and have been uh, focusing in on it. So we are in Matthew 24 uh, today. One of the key characteristics of mature faith is the ability to live with the end in mind. Say that one more time. One of the key characteristics of mature faith. So how do you know that you are mature or are maturing in your faith, in your walk with the Lord? Well, you have an increased ability to live with the end in mind, to look beyond what's just right here, right now, today, at this minute. The scriptures are filled with exhortations and commands to remember that the last day is coming. And on that day, we will see Christ revealed in all of his infinite glory, and his all-encompassing power. Now, in many ways, the goal of discipleship, my job as a pastor, my job as a disciple-maker, is to get people to live in light of that future reality. I am constantly reminding people that this is not all there is, that there is a day coming when Christ will come back and to live in light of that day, to see now in light of that day when Christ returns. When we remember that Christ is coming again and that all eyes will see him as he really is, it tends to change our perspective, doesn't it? The sins that tempt us the most become less attractive. The idols that we tend to love and cling to when we remember that they're only temporary and fading and fragile and cracked, and that Jesus, who's greater, who will never fade, we tend to let go of our idols just a little bit easier, they become less glittery, glittery and appealing to us. The troubles that normally bring us great stress and anxiety somehow seem a little lighter when we remember, oh yes, Jesus is coming to make all sad things untrue. Even death itself somehow loses power somehow loses its fearful grasp, when we remember that Jesus is someday going to split the sky and that those who were dead and trusted in him are going to raise again to walk with him in a very personal and real presence. So to live with the end in mind, that's the the mark of a mature Christian, someone who can live beyond the here and now. As Christians, we are to live readying our hearts to see Christ. As much as we prepare for lots of other things, we spend our days like busy bees building hives of careers and and hobbies and, and, and our favorite idols and all these things we spend building and doing. It's ever important right now to remember that we have a King who is imminent, a King who is coming, a world that is fading an age that is ending in a new age to come. (laughs) Lemuel Haynes was an 18th century African-American preacher. Now, in the 18th century, to be an African-American preacher in New England was quite the accomplishment. He preached to sometimes mixed congregations. Um, But one of the things that Lemuel Hayes loved to do in New England was that he would call his congregation to remember that the end, whether by death, or by Christ's return, was near. He preached um, a, sermon, a, a funeral sermon in 1805 entitled, Expect to Die Soon. Can you imagine if I put my sermon tiles like that? Expect to die soon. So that was his, uh, his funeral sermon, Expect to Die Soon. And it was focused on 1 Corinthians 7. So he read 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31, and begins his funeral sermon. And here's what he tells his listeners. Neither prosperity nor adversity will much affect him who expects every hour to come to the end of his journey or close his eyes on the things below the man who expects soon to remove will have his mind much taken up with the country to which he is going he will inquire about it and form as much acquaintance with it as possible He will attend to the the geography of it and will have it much in his conversation. He will wish to know how it is likely to fare with him when he arrives there. Now for Haynes, he's specifically speaking of a believer's death. That's what he has in view. But it applies to the discussion of the end times. My friends, when we know that that the end is near, when we know that the new age is soon to come, how easy it is to let go of things like our obsessive hold of money and 401ks and all these things that we're so concerned with, as good as they are, as right as, and, and wise as we are to, to have those things and be wise with those things, it suddenly becomes less appealing to keep these things. Right? Like think of how worthless it is to keep change, keep hold uh, coins and, and dollar bills from a regime that's dying away. That's pointless. You don't want the old regime's money. You want the new regime. You want the new kingdom's money. Well, in the same way, when you keep in mind that the end is coming, it helps you to better live in the present. We look ahead so that we can live life as we should now. I will tell you this, this sermon may not scratch a lot of your fancies for eschatology, right? So I've, I've spent better part of 10 to 11 years studying theology in seminaries, and I can tell you there are endless, endless theories about how the end will come. We've got names for them all. Right? And as soon as you think you've gotten one, then you decide, well, maybe the other one's right. And so it's not going to scratch your fancy. And the thing, and, and, and I'm just going to invite you to put your Prophecy Today magazines away because it's not what the focus of Matthew 24 is. As much as our main concern tends to be looking for signs, symbols, We want to know whether the eagle is Germany or America in Daniel. As much as we tend to be obsessed with those things, Jesus would have you focus on living daily faithfulness. My friends, we can argue till we're blue in the face on our favorite view of eschatology and all the while still be living very unfaithfully in the here and now. The point of Matthew 24 is is not when the end will come, but how we are to live in light of the end that is coming. So we're going to flip it upside down a little bit today. Words like pre-tribulation rapture, all-millennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, those things are great and fun discussions. They're fun to have over coffee. We're not doing that in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, the goal today is to study Jesus' words, And to figure out how he wants us to live in light of that coming end. So then as we approach this text, uh, you're going to have more questions than you have answers about the end of the age. My friends, can I just call you to humility? You won't figure it out. We debate Jesus' second coming the way the Jews debated his first coming. And guess what? They were all wrong you're not going to figure it out. You come up with your schematics. You come up with your chronologies. You get your tables ready. You get your magazines out. That's fine. They're all going to be wrong at some point. Here's the important thing. Jesus is coming back. Are you living a life that is consistent with that truth? That's the far greater concern. And that's what Jesus wants us to focus on not so much the intricacies and the little details of every little eschatological theory. He wants to live faithful lives that mirror the fact that he is king and he is returning to claim his throne on earth. Now, Matthew 24 has been a hotbed of controversy and theological debate for years. There are books written just one book's written, and then another book's written to counter that book, and that book's written to counter that book, and next thing you know, you've got generations of books out there. There are some who believe that Matthew 24 refers only to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's called preterism, by the way, if you care, right? And there's a whole lot of other isms that are mixed in there too. There's others who believe that it speaks only of the end times. Jesus is not speaking about Jerusalem at all. And there's others, and I'll just kind of tip my hand here, who believe that, speaking of both, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of days. Why do I believe that? Because that's what it says. But instead of debating exactly which is which and how to distinguish it, you're going to find that Jesus flows really smoothly in between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. He doesn't really clarify these things. And I think it's humbling to know that the disciples who were with Jesus didn't quite grasp the point. They were the ones who received his words. They were the ones that were able to ask clarification questions. And Jesus doesn't care to clarify the individual details of when things are going to happen. But he gives a whole bunch of imperatives. My friends, we tend to, we're just, we're we're people that love being in on the know. We love making these theories. We, I, I was, uh, in the barbershop one day listening to a guy talk about how the vaccine is how God's going to bring the, the bold judgment of boils on people. And he has it by authoritative information that that's how that's going to happen. Guys, that's whatever. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? I could care less about his view of the end time and, and, and what he thinks... This is that, and this is going to be this, and he obsesses his whole day trying to figure out, is this it, and is this it, and is this it? And Jesus is like, can you just obey and live as if it's today? We're so worried about trying to find the signs and the symbols and the end times, and we get so wrapped up. It's one of the most popular theological things. People won't read the Bible, but they'll, watch the, they'll read and watch the left-behind novels, And yet all the while, we pass over the simple, basic commands of God. My friends, here's your eschatology as simple Christians. It could be today. And so I'm going to live as if it is today. If you want to know my simple eschatology as a Bible-believing Christian who has read the arguments, who has had to read these endless books, 800 pages to 1,000 pages of preterism, pre-tribulation rapturism, who's had to read all these things. Here's where I'm at. I don't know. You want to know my personal viewpoint? I really hope pre-tribulation rapturism is true. Nobody wants to suffer. If the tribulation happens and I'm still here and Jesus hasn't come back, I'll become mid-trib. If I'm here in the middle of the tribulation and Jesus still hasn't come, post-trib's probably right. <laughs> but here's what I trust: Jesus is coming back, and I'm going to live faithfully in light of that. If he has me wait, and if he delays, and he delays, and he delays, I will be a faithful servant even in the delay. Will you be? Sometimes it's hard to know exactly which telos, that's the Greek word for end, exactly which end are we talking about in Matthew 24. Because he goes back and forth, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the age, and he goes back and forth. There's some moments that's really clearly talking about Jerusalem and what's happening in AD 70 when the Romans are going to come, which in Jesus' day was still a future event and was not foreseen. If you would have told the people in Jesus' day, which Jesus did, that the temple is going to be knocked down and destroyed, that's end-time prophecy type stuff to them. The temple is central to their life. And so to say that the temple is going to be knocked down and destroyed and that Jerusalem is going to be leveled is a threat to life as the Jews know it. That is end-time type stuff to them. It is a mark of the end. But then Jesus says things that very clearly surpass Jerusalem. Things like a tribulation that it has to be cut short so that the elect might survive. Well, who are the elect? Well, in Matthew's gospel, the elect tends to be believers universally, believers in the world. So it's kind of unclear. And so we can sit here and we can divide uh, on these little bitty basic points. The reality is, is we simply don't know. The end is coming, and the end of other things are coming, and there's lots of ends coming, and we live in light. We live as end time people now, even when we don't know when the end is. And we just faithfully applaud. My friends, I remember in Y2K, I was alive in Y2K, so I remember in Y2K, Prophecy Now magazines were the hottest selling thing in the United States. Our church did amazing Bible studies on the end times and how to know all these things leading up to Y2K and how Y2K was going to be the kickoff. (laughs) Uh, I think I've shared this story before, but on our uh, new year's party, my dad and I um, decided to hatch a plan and it was me and a couple guys. So my dad had his hands clean, but when Y2K happened, we counted three, two, one, we hit the breaker switch and all the lights went out in the church. And there was a guy in the back, it's come, it's come, I hope you're ready. I'm sure there are people sweating and crying and repenting, it probably wasn't a good thing to do, but it was a funny thing, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that. If it was funny, it's good, I'm, you know, I hope they've forgiven me 21 years later, now that they know that Y2K wasn't the kickoff, okay? That's it. I just remember during Y2K, everybody was bettering their lives. You better get it in shape, right? You better get it in shape, you better... You better live now. You you know what? If you haven't bought your doomsday package. And we treat repentance as if it's something that we want to find. And really, here's what's behind our end times and signs and symbols reading. How long can I live before I have to be a serious Christian? Can Can I just say that? Sometimes we're looking for the end time signs because we want to know how long can I live the way I am before it gets serious, that I means you should be living as a serious Christian now. You should know how much is at stake now. There are cosmic powers at war now. The devil is raging now. Antichrist might not have come. There are lots of Antichrists in the world, though. And you are to live as a last day Christian today, not then. Not when you finally see that sign that then convinces you. No, you are to live as a last day Christian today, as if today, right now, as as if at the end of this service, it could be the last day. Far too many of us live that way. We kind of procrastinate that kind of preparation, right? Last day will come, maybe some other time, but not today. But Jesus says it could come anytime. Like a thief in the night. And so, my friends, this is a simple call from Matthew 24. Jesus doesn't make things clear here. And if you disagree with me, read it and see again and again and again. Jesus doesn't clarify all these things. There's a lot of mystery he leaves to the end of days. In fact, he doesn't really answer their question. They ask, when will these things be? Jesus never says when, but he tells them how to live in light of it. In fact, he says, no man knows, not even the son, only the father knows. So he doesn't even answer their question. His concern is not the details. When I tell my children, I want your room cleaned by the time I get home, and Titus says, dad, what time are you going to get home? I'm not going to tell you, son. But by the time I get home, your room should be clean. I want you to live at 9 a.m. as if dad could come home at 9.30. Get the room clean. Because I don't want you at 4.30 thinking, "Ah, Dad comes home at 5. I can you know, watch a few more Paw Patrols before dad comes home, right? <laughs> no, we're supposed to live in this anticipation that the end is near because we are in the end. These are the last days. Paul said it. Peter said it, Jesus said it, over and over and over. We are in the last age. This is the final chapter before the book closes in this age and a whole new age begins. And we are to live in light of that. So that said, we've got two things at stake in this text, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ. Jesus says a lot in this chapter about what is to come in both, I think, Jerusalem, and at the end of days. As mentioned before, distinguishing between the pronouncements of judgment and what's to come and all, the, all those things, it's really, really tricky. There, sometimes the themes um, could apply specifically to the last day, as I've mentioned already. And there's other things that apply very much then. Wars and rumors of wars. Because you, you look at the history, you do a historical study of what happened in Israel leading up to AD 70 when the Romans came, And I don't think you understand how bad that event was. Happy Mother's Day, but in AD 70, mothers were eating their kids because they'd been sieged. They're starving to death. People were throwing themselves off of rocks to kill themselves. It It was, talk about end time type stuff. Josephus describes it as if there had never been a worse siege in the history of the world. And you read what happened before that. What happened before that? Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. My friends, when have we ever not lived in an age where those things are not our reality? Those are all birth pains, Jesus says. To the end of days, we, we live in a world, surprise, surprise, that's violent and broken. We live in an actual physical earth that groans for the last day. Tidal waves and earthquakes and pandemics and extinctions of animals, just all kinds of things, just groaning for the last day. We live in a broken world that's growing increasingly colder because of how far it continues to run from God. So again, time period may not be clear, but here's what Jesus tells us for those of us who live in days of tribulation, okay, so again, I don't know about the great tribulation. I don't know. I'm going to reserve that right as a human being. I don't know. But for people who live in times of trouble, tribulation, there's a way that we are called to live. So you're going to find that this text has applied to your Chinese brothers and sisters for the last 45 years. Mao Zedong marched across China. We think it's the end of the world because we had to endure a lockdown. Because presidential debates and candidacies have gone crazy. Our Chinese brothers and sisters laugh and they say, it could get a whole lot worse. You think it's the end of the world just because your president didn't get elected. They've been enduring that kind of tribulation for 45 years. Years. They're used to it. And they live in light of it. They live in the fact of knowing that they live in days where the nations will hate you for my name's sake. That's been true for them for 45 years. And let me just tell you, American Christian, you do not know what that is like yet. What you've lived throughout the grand 1800s and 1900s is not normal, very abnormal, a blessing, but not normal. It applies to our Chinese brothers. It applies to the woman who's going through tribulation because of her cancer that continues to give her deep pain. And it applies to those of you who have not yet gone through any kind of tribulation. Maybe the worst suffering that you've had is you've lost some family members, but you know that tribulation's on the way. Well, this is a message for you. So what follows then in this sermon is not this detailed graphics up on the stage, on the, on the projector, where we're going to look at all the symbolism and the signs, and we're going to read the modern day times of what's happening. And do you hear what Germany did yesterday? And this is going to, you're not going to hear that up here. What you are going to hear is how you, believer in Ovilla, Texas, can live as a last day Christian today because that's what you need to hear. So what does a last day life look like? Well, a last day life looks like freedom from deception. Jesus's followers are not to be deceived. There's lots of pseudo-Christ out in the world. Jesus says, "'See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, "'I am the Christ,' and they will lead many astray.'" In verse 11, he warns, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then he repeats the warning again in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even Christians. Now the point in all those verses, pretenders are coming. We've seen it, haven't we? You've heard it on the TBN TV channel, right? You've heard it on the radio. It's recorded in history books. Pretenders have come. And they're claiming to be Christ. They're claiming to preach the truth. We might think an odd thing. I don't know if any of us have ever, like, have you ever met a false Christ? Have you ever met anyone that's pretending to be a false Christ? Well, it wasn't that abnormal if you look at the grand scheme of history. Just a few years later, uh, the guy, a guy comes, after, after Jerusalem is destroyed, a guy named Simon Barkova comes, and he, can, he deceives countless of broken Jews that he's the Messiah. And he leaves them all in a revolt, and they get completely slaughtered again. Surely this was the one, though, right? To put Jerusalem at the rightful seat of power. I think of the 1950s, 1960s Chinese revolutionaries who rallied around Mao Zedong in hopes that he would bring a better life to the working party. Surely this is the one who will bring lasting societal and economic peace to fractured China. 60 years later, the working class is still waiting on that better life. My friends, human history shows that we're far more gullible than we care to think if we can just be honest with ourselves, we tend to buy the tricks of the person who carries the biggest stick, who wields the greatest influence, and holds the largest fan base. That's who we want to be attached to. My friends, whenever our hearts, whether knowingly or unknowingly, attribute the title, the one, to a man, woman, government, politician, institution, you have fallen prey to a pseudo Christ. There's only one, the one, right? Isn't there only one, the one? I'm not talking about Neo and Matrix. I'm talking about the one, right? There's only one, the one. If I ask you, who is the one? Who is the one who brings you satisfaction? Who is the one that you think can bring you lasting peace? Who is the one that thinks that, uh, that you think can bring you satisfaction of joy? Who is the one that can bring you eternal life? Who is the one that can bring you all the wealth of heaven, not wealth of earth, because it doesn't matter on earth? Who is the one? Be careful who you say the one about. And we do it all the time, don't we? Every presidential election, we do it. Every city election, surely this is the one, this is the mayor that will fix it all. My friends, there's only the one, the one. And Jesus knew that we would fall prey to many the ones. And so he tells you as Christians to do not be deceived. So what happens if we ignore this warning? What happens? You know, so what? I got a couple of the ones, right? Well, imagine a man in the desert who has found an oasis that's fed by a cool stream. Sees off in the horizon that there's possibly another oasis with tall trees. What would you tell that man? He's in an oasis with real water. He's drinking out of it. He's surviving the desert. And he sees off in the the distance, can't quite tell what it is, but looks like an oasis with tall trees. Would you recommend that man to leave that oasis to go after it? No, why? How do you know that's not a mirage? My friends, when we chase pseudo-Christ, we leave the real water in the hand for some false hope of a sweeter, cooler water off on the horizon. God laments about his people. We as God's people, we as Grace Church people, have a tendency to do exactly what Jeremiah 2.13 says. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewn cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you hear what that that warning is? That sometimes when we chase after all these the ones, what we're constantly doing is we're leaving, leaving leaving the water, the river, for mud holes in hopes that the mud hole will give us something better than the river. And yet we wonder why we're tired, parched, dry, thirsty, cold, angry, dying inside. Why? Because you have chased the pseudo-Christ. Jesus said, I am the water of life. There's only one water of life that you can drink from and forever be satisfied but we chase after mud holes all the time. And Jesus says to be a last day follower of him, don't do that. That's being deceived. Second, Jesus' followers are not to be alarmed, not to be alarmed, but to trust. My friends, we as Christians should be some of the coolest cats around. There's a little gift I send to people all the time during a bad week. It's just a little dog drinking a coffee mug and the house is burning all around him. I feel like that is a proper gift. That's a Christian gift, I think. It's a little Christian meme that you can just text your friends. That's how we're supposed to live. We are not to be alarmed. Not only will many Christ come, many prophets come that are going to deceive. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. In 2020, uh, 2020, we had pandemics and riots and capital building insurrection. We had uh, locust plagues all in Africa. We heard of the murder hornets, right? We were all supposed to die from that at some point. I got stung by a hornet around that time or a little wasp. I, th- I was like, oh, that's it. This is it. <laughs> I'm done. I'll be honest. It's like, like the pandemic, when people said pandemic, I'm like, ah, like, you know, I've always handled viruses well. But when, I, when it was like more murder horn, it's like, all right, I'm out. I'm done. This is it. This is really the end, you know? No, but in all reality, we're fearful people, aren't we? We're always alarmed. Alarm bells going off all the time. And it's not that these things aren't really happening. They are happening. But you're called to not be alarmed by them. Jesus goes so far to tell his disciples that there's going to be a future abomination of desolation. Well, what is that? Well, that's what I think is actually talking about the temple. Why? Because Daniel says that it's the temple. The abomination of desolation is when a foreign ruler comes into the holy places, tears it down, and ceases the worship that started there. It's happened twice. Actually, three times you count Nebuchadnezzar, but it's happened twice after Daniel's prophecy. It happened the first time in Antiochus Epiphanes' day when he rode a big fat pig into the Holy of Holies and slaughtered it on an altar and built a statue to Zeus. That was abomination of desolation. It also happened when Titus and his Romans came marching in and decided to start toppling buildings over and stand where the Holy of Holies was. And take out the the treasure. You ask a Jew today, when the abomination of desolation happened, they point to the Temple Mount and they say, look, here it is. So something as bad as that's going to happen. Now for those of you that are like, what about the future, future abomination of desolation? I don't know, maybe there will be another one. There's been two, so wouldn't be surprised if there's a third. But the reality is, bad things are coming. Right? Terrible. Bad things are coming. Really vile and despicable, desolating things are coming. So then what? See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Do you hear that? The the abomination of desolation happens, but it's still not the end yet. Jesus says that. So this really bad thing happens. And he says, don't be alarmed because it has to happen. In Matthew's gospel, the word must is oftentimes a signal that things are happening as God has planned them. When Jesus says, for example, the Christ must go to Jerusalem, suffer and die. Basically what he's saying is it's according to plan. So when Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed for this must take place. In other words, don't be alarmed. God's in control. It's all happening. 2020 pandemic. Was that really outside of God's plan? Are any of us really bold enough to say that God didn't ordain 2020 the way it happened? I mean, because if we are, then we're basically saying that God wasn't sovereign. He made a mistake. He had an oversight. Are any of us willing to say that? No. We endure these types of things because our God is in control. We are not alarmed because we know the man in the driver's seat. We know the one who has architected all of it. And he's sovereign. You, my friends, as Christians, have a close, personal relationship with the creator of the cosmos. With the Savior who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right now. Do not be alarmed. But trust. Can I just give you freedom today, this Mother's Day, just to not be afraid? Not to be alarmed, just to trust that all happens the way that God wants it to happen. And that God's purposes and promises will come to their rightful end. My friends, we may face another pandemic. We may face more political turmoil. The things that we love most might just get wiped out. And not one of those things will stop you from being in the presence of Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. You might die from COVID-28. And if you believe in Jesus, your security, your place in his presence is just as much firm now as it ever was. Do not be alarmed, but trust. Jesus' followers are also to endure. By the way, I, I just want a little, little pastoral note here. If this is more boring than if we would have looked at the signs and symbols, you've got to check your heart. This is what the real meat of the text is. This is what Christ has called us to do. Jesus has called his followers to endure and love for God, and love for others. In times of trouble, I think we have seen personally, it is easy for believers to lose their fire. How many of you in 2021 would say, it was, maybe some of you will, it's okay if you do. But if you're normal, like the rest of us, there's some of you that say, 2021 was kind of terrible for my walk with the Lord at points. I've seen it over and over again, where people just kind of grew cold in their affection and adoration of God. Not only that, in 2020 and 2021, I've also seen people fall out of love with each other. People who used to dance together and be best friends together and and go out with their life group together and enjoy one another no longer do so because they don't agree in the politics. We tend, we tend to do these things, to, to grow out of love of God, and others, based on whatever's around us. Jesus says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, trouble, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is increased, yes, the world is falling away from God's way, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. My friends, in 2020, people were asking me all the time, don't you think that this is just a, don't you think the pandemic and the, the election season and the, you know, the, the events of the war, the wars that we're in, don't you think that those are just true signs of the end time? Don't you just know that Jesus is on the horizon? Can't you just see it? I just simply answered truthfully, I don't know. Here's how I know that we are in the end times. Because Christians have a love that has grown cold. That's one sure prophecy that Jesus gives. When things get bad, our love grows cold. When churches split, when once Christian friends who loved each other and were longing to be together and when people were ready to rally around the mission of Christ, well, those were the glory days, right? Right? But then throw in just a little bit of political turmoil and suddenly, boom, we hate each other now. That's the sign that the end times have come. Because love has grown cold. They have to read prophecy today to see that. That's just the reality of what Jesus says. In the end, there will be so much badness in the world that even among believers in churches... They won't have that warm love in hospitality that once was there. My friends, has that become true of us? Is our love for God and our love for each other as white, and hot, giving out light and heat as it ever was? More so now than ever. We want people to know now we love God, and we love others. Why? Because Jesus has loved us. We want them now in 2021 to have that message. Recent studies have shown that uh, for the first time ever, less than 50% of Americans go to any kind of house of worship. For the first time in American history, less than 50% of our nation goes to any, that's including a mosque, that's including a synagogue, and churches. Less than 50% of Americans call a house of worship their own. That's not because of the isolation of the pandemic. That's simply because people are giving up. There's too many disagreements. I've, I've had, uh, there's a friend of mine that uh, pastors up north. 30% of his church left during the pandemic because they did not agree with a quote that he posted that had nothing to do with anything. Because the guy that, qu- that gave the quote, they thought was some kind of Marxist what is that? Seriously? We say a guy's name and suddenly, boom, that means we got to separate fellowship. How weak of a unity do we have for that to happen? We separate over masks, separate over politics, separate over whether we like the purple chairs or the gray chairs, whatever it is. My friends, The sign that the end has come is that your love for the people sitting beside you, behind you, and around you, and on your Facebook page, on your Instagram page, in your neighborhood, the sign of the time that the end has come is that you don't love them, and you don't love God like you should. So if you want to be a last day, faithful believer, love God, love others, and don't stop. Despite all the hardships and troubles Jesus gives us a final glimpse of hope. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's in verse 14. You know, we tend to think that that passage means that we all have to go on mission trips now because we've got to reach the nation so that we can hasten the end. We want the end to come quickly, so we're going to go do that. I don't think that that's a wrong application. I think we should be going on mission trips. We want the nations to hear the gospel. But I don't think we can hasten the day. Does that make sense? We can't hasten anything. It's not like if we double time it, then we're going to make things happen quicker. But what it is saying is that the end will come when all the nations hear the gospel. Do you hear the good news in that? Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famine, earthquakes, nations hating you. And guess what? All the nations still hear the gospel. My friends, we're more powerful than we think we are. China can hate us all we want. Iran can hate Christians all they want. It's not going to stop our gospel from pervading every inch of Iran. So what then? Spend your day doing what's most effective. You'll get nowhere having all these lesser discussions and debates. Why not hit your horse to the horse that you know is going to win? If you're going to throw your lot in with something, you don't know if your politician's going to be there tomorrow. You don't know if your thoughts about current events are going to be the same tomorrow. One thing you do know that your king is going to be king today, tomorrow, and forever. Why not focus on that horse My friends, don't lose the real thing for the real thing. Come on, this is Jesus Christ, the king of all the universe. He's coming to make all things new. Your money will burn. Your house will burn. Your car will crumble. Everything will be gone, and you won't even miss it. Because Jesus is king, and all the earth is his. My friends, in the last days, we live and walk this earth as heirs of the earth. We live and walk as people who know that's my kings and that's my kings and you're my kings and he's my kings and she's my kings. That nation's my kings. To heck with what Putin does to Russia right now. Russia still belongs to Jesus. Jesus. The next president can mess up America. America, North America, and beyond still belongs to Jesus. Do we preach that message? My friends, this is a call back to reality. To call you out of your dreamlike state that all these things that you're worried about and focused on really matter. Because what really does matter is that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. It'll be undeniable, you know. I don't know exactly how Christ will come. I don't know the chronology of everything. I don't know if I'll do some midair dance in between. I don't you know, I don't know. I hope I go exactly when you go, so you know. But I do know this Jesus is coming. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be. In other words, that's the, Old, the New Testament way of saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. When Jesus comes, you will know it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. I don't know what that is. He doesn't say. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because they rejected him. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, where are you in this text? He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and he will gather his elect. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Do you hear the confidence in that? It doesn't say he might or this could happen. He says this will happen. The Son of Man is going to come. Daniel 7 says that he's going to ride on clouds, which is an expression of his authority over Everything. Jesus does not bat an eye. Jesus does not question. Jesus does not languish. Jesus does not wonder. Jesus knows he himself will be king. And he is king. Therefore, you will be gathered to him. No one can stop it. We could put chains on your coffin and the chains won't hold you there. Jesus will gather his elect. And they will be with him forever and ever. Do you live with that kind of anticipation? To be a last day Christian is to live anticipating that your king will one day be visibly king of all things. Now we finish off here. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The most hope-inspiring and action-requiring news is Aslan is on the move. They say it over and over. Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. He comes closer and closer, and the closer he comes to the stone table, where, spoiler alert, Aslan dies sacrificially for a sinner and raises again, the white witch's power begins to fade. She has kept Narnia in winter for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, always winter and never Christmas. Ice, snow everywhere. Aslan gets closer, the snow melts. Aslan gets closer, the river melts, and it flows again. Aslan gets closer, and all the woodland animals come out and make tea parties because it is a sign that the flowers are blooming, and Aslan is on the move. Don't you understand? He's not here yet, but he's on the move. The flowers are blooming, the snow is melting. Aslan is on the move. Before he even gets there, you ask some woodland creature, why, why, why are you celebrating Aslan is on the move. And here's what they tell you. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. I kind of hear some similarities in that. When our Aslan, Jesus, says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near and at the very gates. My friends, you may have been in the ice cold, wintry regions of 2020 and 2021 for a long time. Summer is coming because Jesus is on the move. Live with Jesus on the move. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, that this really poor and insufficient explanation of a very complex text will glorify you and work for the most important goal, which is for believers to be obedient, humble, kind, loving people that are faithful and that plod and endure suffering well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.